long ago, Melissa and I were invited to a New York City gala in support of a not-for-profit that we had peripheral association with. It was down at Chelsea Piers. It was a great affair. Mandy Pintinkin was the, the celebrity honoree. So it was one of these, you know, uh, lots of folks there. They were raising a lot of money for a good cause and so on. We were the guests of some friends and sitting at their table, but before we sat down, we were mingling amongst all of these people we did not know. And because we did not know, we were sort of sequestered by ourselves for much of the time, but eventually we wound up in conversation with this very garrulous character, probably, I'd guess, in his early 70s, um, he had a lot to say. He had a lot to tell me about himself and um, his life and all of the stuff he was doing in his house up on the hill and so on. And I learned that he was a, a molecular biologist that had been over at Rockefeller University for some years and then he went on to something else. And this went on and on and on for about 10 minutes. And he was gesticulating and oh my God, it was a lot to tell us. But eventually he got round to saying, oh, and what do you do? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm the senior minister of Christ Church on Park Avenue and 60th Street. And this is one of those occasions you wished you had a video camera, because this guy's mouth went like this, and his eyes went like this, and after a pause he said, Whoa. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. And it was just dripping with disdain. And he quickly found his way to another person. I offer that simply as introduction to the fact that it was never clear to me exactly what I was getting myself into when I chose to walk down this path. You know, I entered Yale Divinity School when I was 22 years old, which seems really, really young to me. I see a lot of nods, yes. Sociologists are telling us that mature adulthood is arriving quite a bit later now, so 22 may seem like just the start of a protracted adolescence. And honestly, when I look back on those days, I would tell you that I was sort of an emotional basket case when I made my way from the West Coast to the East Coast, not really having a clue as to how I might fashion a meaningful life. And I suffered from what, was, what has now become the neurotic benchmark of our moment, a crushing anxiety. I dripped with it. Some of the anxiety was driven by the belief that I was supposed to have my act together as I graduated from college. The implicit cultural expectation was that college prepared you for your career, which would commence immediately upon graduation, marriage would soon follow, and then kids and a mortgage resulting in great satisfaction and happiness as you made your way up whichever occupational ladder you had chosen, eventually to retire when work would cease and your well-earned playtime would begin. 
That was the first post-World War II script. The world had been saved from tyranny, and a golden time of infinite opportunity lay ahead. The apple was ripe for the picking. But then that catalyzed some of the agitated anxiety for someone like me, who was not especially well-suited to the most conventional, or shall we say, opportune vocations. My mother wanted me to be, in her words, a brain surgeon. Well, that wasn't going to happen. And when word got around that I was headed off to divinity school, that came as quite a shock to nearly everyone, including my friends, by the way. Now, I didn't enter divinity school headed towards ordination initially. I, it was just that I was very, very intrigued with God, who had become increasingly real to me. A fluky set of circumstances is what got me to Yale Divinity, although in retrospect, I see now the golden thread linking the days of my life to the present moment. But, but one's vocation is only one facet of the conundrum of living into a meaningful life. Perhaps you've seen the recent film, All the Money in the World. It chronicles the time in 1973 when J. Paul Getty's grandson was kidnapped. Getty at the time was the richest man in the world. And the film tells a harrowing tale of capitalist attitude run amok. Christopher Plummer was nominated for an Oscar for his portrayal of this awful man who nevertheless had a knack for accumulating great wealth. This knack did not serve his offspring, however and in fact begs the question of what else actually matters for a life well lived. Getty was enamored of accumulating stuff and things. He said he loved his children and grandchildren, he said it, but as I will discuss next week, love is as love does. Still, even in that thoroughly dysfunctional family, there was an implicit understanding that love was supposed to have a central role in human flourishing. Love was an aspect of their conceptual framework. Their inability to execute actual love drives the story forward. And by the way, I would add that drives the story forward in many families today. Of course, love is part of the conceptual framework for most everyone and lies at the heart of all the enduring religious traditions. That's where we most regularly learn about it. So while we're growing up, making our way out into the world, figuring out our vocations and life patterns, we're also figuring out how love fits in with various degrees of intention all of us try to figure it out, this love thing. I can tell you that many, if not most, of the problems people come to talk with me about involve an issue with love, even if that word never comes up in our conversation. And while I believe love is woven into every part of creation, Indeed, it's the very engine of creation. We're nevertheless chronic victims 
chronic victims of defective role modeling. We humans have been so fashioned that it seems love must be chosen by us. It's an option in our human freedom. God's love for us is not optional, but for us it is an option in every moment of every day, and very often we simply do not choose it. Same was true for our parents to greater or lesser degrees, and their parents before them, and so on, drifting back into the misty past until we find ourselves in that lovely garden called Eden when Eve invites Adam to take a bite of the apple and look what happened to the brothers Cain and Abel. That's the story lore that our tradition teaches. It's hung around in our collective memory as long as it has because it resonates with human experience. It reveals something authentic about us. In this way, the story is archetypal. It describes a general condition. We are fickle and idolatrous, narcissistic and petty, often disregarding the better voices, the voices of the better angels of our nature. And so love can seem terribly elusive, if simultaneously really, really important. Now, we heard the writer of 1 John say it explicitly. It doesn't get any clearer than this. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Since God loves us so much, we also ought to love one another. And he says it in that form and then in another form again and again in the short passage we read. In here we say that statement describes the heart of our faith. If we seek to learn how to love, we have only to look to God's Son, Jesus Christ, as our model. And his way of love followed this pattern. Birth, life, suffering, death, resurrection. At each step along the way, he chose the loving alternative. And this was both glorious and fraught with anguish. And we have an instinct for the anguish that is tied into love. You know this from your own experience, that if you love something, someone, you set yourself up for hurt. We see that writ large in the life and times of Jesus, who loved us so very well. In this way, we say that genuine love comes only through our vulnerability. If we extend ourselves to someone in love, we run the risk of rejection or misunderstanding or the lack of what we deem appropriate reciprocation. We run the risk of needing to give something up that we have otherwise decided is really important to us. A word like sacrifice takes on meaning in real time. In his discussion of love, C.S. Lewis wrote, There is no safe investment here. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, 
safe, dark, motionless, airless. It will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. And so we see many people choosing to walk around in little versions of hell. So back to my time in divinity school. After I woke up to the necessity of ordination, I took an intensive summer course in New Testament Greek. Toward the end, one of the exams involved translating the first letter of John from which we read today. At one point, I recall parsing out, God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. And because I was exhausted from this course, it was six hours a day, five days a week, for three months. And here at the end, very tired of this project at the point, I felt like writing out, Yada, yada, yada. (laughs) But then, this next sentence. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. And I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this, but for whatever reason, it felt like I was hit by a two-by-four though I was not reading for content. It struck me hard. The opposite of love was not hate, but fear. Fear was the great enemy. And love the great antidote. I had never really heard that before, though I had read the passage many times. And so at the age of 22, I internalized the lesson that if I were ever going to learn how to love well, I would be contending with fear. And I have since learned well that fear lies behind so much bad behavior of every sort, the big flashy arrogant kind and the quiet passive victimized kind and every kind of bad behavior in between. Fear is lurking, fear is lurking, fear is lurking as an insidious driver. I started the practice of paying attention to my fears, to name them and bring them to consciousness, to recognize and own them. And you know what, friends, this is a very difficult This is a difficult, sometimes excruciating, even humiliating discipline. But little by little, I discovered that if I did that, I was often able to move through my fear. I learned that I could love better. Not perfectly, mind you, but better. And then I learned bit by bit that the more I attempted to genuinely love, the less I feared. It was a stunning revelation to me. And I began to see how our social ills are fashioned and driven principally by fear. Racism and sexism and all the tribalisms that keep us on lockdown among our own kind, however we define it. So much fear and resulting defensiveness and aggression and violence 
It made so much sense all of a sudden to me. It opened my heart and mind to what happened to Jesus and why his triumph was so profoundly liberating. Here was another kind of archetypal story. A man walked into his life and right through his fear with the creative power of love and he triumphed over death itself. That was a story I could give my life to because it wasn't just a story. It described reality, my reality for certain, but I was convinced it was bigger than that. I felt it in every fiber of my being. Friends, that is the sort of love we're talking about in here. The gluing agent of life itself, the core, the heart of the matter, the essence of life's meaning and purpose, the true antidote to fear that agitates so many of our problems. You know, I chose my profession really somewhat selfishly in this regard. The truth is I come here because I need you to help me to learn how to love. We do that for each other. At its best, this place, this congregation is a school for love. And I, for one, am very, very grateful.